You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Chris Abani. Hello, Chris. It's so good to hear your voice. It's been a long time since we've spoken. What What have you been up to today? Uh, apart from getting into trouble today, <laughs> I've been trying to finish um, edits on uh, the Lagos Noir introduction, which I'm editing for Akashic, and edits to the African Poetry uh, chapbook set that I do every year with Kwame Dawes, and I'm trying to find my way into an essay on refugees. What do you mean when you say you're trying to find your way into an essay about refugees? I feel for you this must be a very personal um, subject and a very personal journey. It is, it is. And, and, and I, I, you know, and thinking about how I said that, I think that may even be loaded. But I think that partly what it is, so uh, a, former, a former professor of mine and a close friend, Viet uh, Nguyen, who just also won a MacArthur, uh, among uh, many other prizes, is one, one for his brilliant work, is putting together an anthology of essays about refugees. And because my family and I were refugees during the Biafra Nigerian Civil War a long time ago, he, he wanted me to write something about this. Um, and for me, I suppose for all kinds of writing, it doesn't matter how close or far from, from the writer's life it is, I think there is always this personal angle. There's always this way in which it, it, it can be an opportunity to simply tell an anecdotal story, however powerful that anecdote might be. But for me, it always presents a question that becomes larger, which is why? Why is it important, I have to say, uh, fits into a larger question? And where? So in other words, it's like Baldwin's uh, I'm going to massacre this quote, but Baldwin's idea that one suffering matters only in so much as it can allow others to connect to theirs. And so I'm trying to ask myself, what does my personal understanding and relationship of this, how does this open up into something bigger, something more worthy than just my uh, recounters? You, you mean you're trying to, to understand how the notion of being a refugee is more than your own story of having been one. Yes, and and I think I you know a few years ago I had a little bit of an epiphany about America because I, I didn't grow up here and I, 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 for years I've tried to understand a certain kind of unease. There's a, there's a real unease uh, here, a kind of violent unease, and I, I realized one thing that. That it's because American people who think of themselves as Americans, in other words, anyone who came from Mayflower to now, uh, we call ourselves immigrants, but we're not really immigrants at all. Right. Refugees. That's so, and, and what, and, and, I mean, be, beyond what you just said, when you said you had an epiphany, um, was the epiphany about what it meant to be American as opposed to what it means for you to have been from elsewhere, not quite know where from? Um, well, yes, but, but part of it has to do with the process of becoming an American, because we all, America 
constant becoming. It's, right. it's never, it's really, more than anything, I mean, when someone like Homi Baba describes identity as a, as a journey, as a state of flux rather than a destination, it's never more true than when we think about American and Americanness. And so every wave of arrival has to contend with how to become uh, a, a category that is so unstable, and that instability does have a certain violence to it, but also how uh, how to remain how to remain something that has, that has built uh, your identity, but then how to negotiate that within this sort of myth, this myth, uh, this myth uh, that is so unstable. Well, you know, it's 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 intriguing uh, to to use the word unstable in in this political atmosphere in which we're living, because it would mm. seem it would seem that particularly now there is a desire to think of being American as a stable category and everybody else who isn't, so to speak, American is unstable. Mm. Well, I, um, but the, you see, this is a very, <laughs> this is really what points to the instability of the whole situation because in trying to, even phrases like, back to when America was great or, or whatever the, you know... Whatever, whatever the sentence might be. Yes. It, 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 you know, so, so put it this way. Uh, my father was evil. Yeah. And I was raised to be evil. I, I've never... That, that identity doesn't have this kind of instability where we need to reinscribe evil greatness or reinscribe something because... It, it's sort of a very clear thing. It's a very singular thing and perhaps has had thousands of years to kind of work itself out in a way that I think Native Americans don't, don't wrestle with what it means to be, uh, you know, for what, or what particular nation they're from. I think that their instability is, you know, how to hold on to the, what is being violently eroded. And so I think that all of this, all of this political climate uh, and building up to it, building up to it, you know, with the year before, with all the violent shootings and all of this stuff, uh, is because American, this notion of Americanness is so unstable. It, to be a refugee is to, is to arrive, is to, is to lose a sense of home, a sense of place, and to arrive somewhere else, which, uh, is already inhabited. Now there are two ways to deal with this. One is syncretic, and for one is genocidal. So the syncretic way is to try to think of yourself as an immigrant and try to think about ways in which you become a part of everything that already exists. Uh, and the other way is to eradicate what exists and try to reinscribe something that you have you don't even own because you have just lost something. And so that I think is at the core of this. And I'm probably not saying this very well. Well, you are, you are. And what, what I'm what I'm trying to write in my in my mind, as it were, is the essay that you are writing now. And I'm trying to think: um, Is Chris Abani now writing an essay about arrival? Is is that the subject? Is the subject of what it means to discover a new a new continent or a new coast and to have left behind a whole culture which might itself be threatened and disappear? Um, well, actually, yeah, I think that writing this essay 
is leading me into this idea of arrival um, because I think the whole story of America is arrival. Um, but there is no, I haven't lost the culture I come from. I carry it within me. Uh, it's performed every day um, in the various ways in which uh, ritual was imparted to me as a young man. Um, and it's there linguistically and it's there because I still have access to it. Uh, so that's not really, yeah, I, just, I just think it's sort of, makes me, it, it's ask, making me ask, so when, when I think about even creation myth, uh, say of the Yoruba, there, there, there are indigenous people living in the lands that later become Yoruba kingdoms, and these people have an, a, a god called Obatala, Orishanla, and Orishanla makes the world. And then there is at a certain historical point, maybe, you know, Two, three thousand years ago, and an emergence of a, of a, of a, of a migrant group who bring empire, who bring kingship into this land. And the, the creation myth, these two myths exist side by side, but then there's a new creation myth in which the original god, Obatala or Rishanla, uh, fails, becomes drunk and does not complete the creation. And a new god, his younger brother is sent to complete the creation. And that god's name is Oduduwa who incidentally is the god that announces the arrival of these kinds of kingdoms, these kinds of empire. So this is what I was talking about, the syncretic approach, the ability to 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 find a way to cohabit within a creation myth that allows for indigeneity to coexist with a more recent uh, arrival. And and the other, the other one seems to be one where we erase indigeneity and try to reinscribe uh, an, an old myth that is actually based on arrival, but negates the idea of arrival. So th those are the, so I'm beginning even to question the notion then of, of myself as a writer, how I come to identity, being biracial myself, how I come to craft and how I start to think about craft with every year that I get older and we negotiate the terms of what my aesthetic pursuits are, what my what my drives are. So it's it's a really disruptive uh but beautifully uh challenging way to start to think. Uh but then how to condense that into three thousand words for is the real challenge. I, I know, I know and you know um b because I have I have um a sense also of um not i mean in in my case of really not knowing where i'm from i'm i'm still to this day after 3 decades of of living here always amazed by how quickly and nearly immediately people ask you where you're from and in my case i i really don't know my best answer is i'm confused i'm i'm not sure i'm i'm uncertain and i'm 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 not in ways that perhaps are not dissimilar. I feel that wherever I go, I carry around what is most dear to me. And what is most dear to me are the words I share with someone else. I often say that what brings me close to somebody is if we share the same adjectives. Right. Well, that's beautiful. And I love the idea of the uncertainty. And the sort of acceptance of that uncertainty, I think, is is what perhaps makes us human, the ability to, to have that, to wrestle with this dialectic. But, you know, I love this idea of also collecting, it's almost, not just language, Paul, it sounds like you're collecting a certain kind of love, and, and I don't mean this in a sentimental way, I mean this in a really powerful sense that, say, 
Darwish uh, says in his poem, you know, I have no passport. My heart is my passport. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. I don't know that at all. Mm. Well, I just think that there's this idea that and uh, certainly, again, James Baldwin comes to mind and other writers more, but it's this notion that what is valuable about us, right, is, 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 uh, is something that transcends even story. It is such a primordial thing, and the best we can do is to approximate it. And I think that's really why this idea of uncertainty becomes beautiful, because that's what allows for a certain kind of syncretism. And with syncretism, it means that anything you pull in occupies not, not a less privileged, the same privileged position with all the stories of self, um, but then allows for stories of self that aren't useful or working anymore to kind of be uh, left alone, to, to, be, to be... So I think that this is partly what I'm wrestling with, this idea that there are certain cultural impulses or human impulses that are syncretic, that we're mimetic beings in that way, and then there are other ideas of it which are, which are really flawed and have to seem to come with this idea of purity as though such a thing is possible. Or, or desirable. Yes, all desirable, exactly. You know, um, that is the fear, that is the fear and the violence, uh, that I talk about with the kind of mythos. And I think what we're looking at now in many ways is an effect of that. And, um, what, you know, what's really interesting is that with this global questioning going on, even, even, uh, sort of one can argue, uh, natural phenomenon also seem to be in this upheaval at this moment. Explain to me what you just said, natural phenomenon, because, because, because I, I, I can read it in so many different ways, and I can hear it in so many different ways, and I, I wonder what you intended. Well, I'm trying to allude to something profound, but the difficulty, of course, with language in many ways is that it can then seem flippant, but I'm talking about just a very simple way in which we're going through... A, such a massive tearing up of notions of self, identity, belonging in this nation. And then there are hurricanes ripping through the virtue, the literal landscape. And part of what is interesting is that these natural phenomenon that are creating so much damage reveal even the deeper kind of uh, sicknesses within our own psyche. Uh, as in recently, for instance, the way that, that the president has been responding to the disaster in Puerto Rico in the most flippant ways. And so I, the, I sort of, I'm not connecting them in any way, but I'm sort of suggesting that when you, that there are ways in which things external to us, things that are almost beyond human making, our reaction and, re and response and our senses of responsibility within those contexts highlight for us the very almost, I don't like the word moral, I think ethical, ethical disease that we that we we're suffering from as a nation and not because it's located in his in his particular kinds of sort of um rants and, and and speech patterns it doesn't mean that we are not all in somehow in some way implicated or that we're not all being asked to kind of ask ourselves what what our relationship to our own humanness is in these particular moments you know, Chris, one of the essays you wrote um, deeply, deeply moved and touched me. Um, it's called Ethics and Narrative, 
the human and other in a in a journal called Witness. And it is there that I discovered um, a sentence of Baldwin, who you have been invoking a lot um, in our conversation today, um, because I think these references are for you signposts in your life. Um, they are not names you drop, but places where you find yourself. And this one one line which um, just haunts me. I mean, it, it doesn't stop to haunt me. And now, of course, I've read it in so many places, including in Baldwin's essays themselves, is this, this line, which I, I'm sure you know I will quote now, where he says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And, yes. and I, I, I mean, it haunts me in so many ways. And I'm, I'm wondering how it speaks to you now, because I know that for you, unlike for me, Baldwin has been somebody who has been with you, uh, most, uh, most of your life. I think you started reading him when you were about 10 years old. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, the beautiful, one of the joys to me is the way in which Baldwin, 30 years after his death and being ignored for much of that time, has reemerged into, into a much more popular place. Um, the fact that, that 30 years ago and 40 years ago, this, this human, this particular consciousness called Baldwin was, was, had unraveled, had unraveled many of the things that people still struggle with and articulated them in these beautiful ways. And part of the beauty, of course, is that, you know, Baldwin's background is, is within Christianity, within the preacher's pulpit, but that, that, that he's able to transcend the smallness of morality into the larger questions that are more ethical, uh, that force us to ask ourselves where our own moralities are, are becoming the problem for the larger ethical movement of a group of people. And I think that Baldwin is one of those writers who is timeless. It, 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 in, in many ways, to give another amazing philosophical reference that people may not think about, is Bob Marley. And the way in which not only when you listen to the lyrics of Bob Marley do you realize how deeply prophetic and how, how, uh, how a kind of artistic uh, mind can reach into an intellectual but also spiritual dialogue and, and open the world in beautiful ways. Which is why if you listen to any Bob Marley song now, it never sounds dated. It just sounds like it was recorded yesterday. And so this, this is what, what I always struggle with as a, as, a, as a writer, not just as a human being, but the question in which how one articulates these struggles has to be beyond demagoguery. It has to be beyond ranting. It has to be beyond uh, taking a stand in these ways. But to wrestle with an understanding that we are all simultaneously dark and light, and that what, what is most profound is our ability to hold these two things 
discerning but without judgment. Because judgment's problem is that it always invokes shame, and shame is never a useful way to move forward. Just ask any recovering Catholic. But And shame also makes us um, feel um, utterly alone. Yes, alone. And But this is what Baldwin's argument is, though, that we have to confront whatever the pain is. There was a beautiful speech that former President Obama gave before he won the election when the whole issue of him and Reverend Wright came up. Yes. And he started to talk about... In Philadelphia. Is that the speech he gave in Philadelphia? Yes. I think so, yes. Yes, and he locates something that I think... When, we, when I use the word whiteness, I'm not necessarily talking about white people, but I'm talking about this notion that people can subscribe to. And the cost of that, and this is what Baldwin has always said, that when you subscribe to any idea of privilege, then you have to relinquish uh, your individuality in a certain kind of way. And that this is the anguish, because we know that that subscription, while it brings multiple benefits, also in, implicates us. In, 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 in its own forms of dehumanizing of otherness, which, which also then makes us participants in this. And so the, there are two ways to cover it up. One is to, is to be, to not deal with it at all and to say, you know, things, put up phrases that kind of make us not have to deal with it. And because at the center of that is the pain of what we have given up, what we have lost, and what we are now, now, what, what we are now party to. And these are difficult. I mean, this is stuff that every man has to wrestle with. The fact that I, as a man, occupy a male body makes it almost impossible for me not to be sexist. I, I may not be misogynistic. I may not be actively sexist. But the point, the point is that I, I never have to consider the world in many ways from a woman's point of view. It's, it's natural. I have to extend myself to do that. And, 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 and that, that we're even talking about it in this way smacks so much of this kind of privilege. And so I don't have, I don't have, I, I have no answers to this. I only have questions. I only, I'm trying to find a way to articulate this that is tender, that is redemptive, that can acknowledge, uh, the damage one goes to the world causing without realizing it. And so it is, it is to face pain in a, in a, in a way that is often, that often has the power to unmake us. But this is really what is being asked of us. At whatever level we exist in, you know, it affects all the ways in which we are as writers, as thinkers, as people, as bakers, as policemen. Um, but it's an extraordinarily beautiful, uh, drive and, um, and much, much amazing things have come from this struggle. There's one word you, you used, which I'd like to press pause on and have you speak about a little more. Do you know which word it is? I don't know. <laughs> How could you? <laughs> what a question I, I just asked you. But it struck me among all the things you said as something that I, I, I want to ask you, Chris, more than anybody about is the word tender. Mm. Why tender? <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, that word, I mean, there, there, there are a few words, I suppose, that give me what Nabokov used to call a tingle in my spine. And one of them is tender. 
The other word that Jan Morris on, on this phone call also used and has used throughout her work is the word kindness. And she uses the word kindness in the sense, I think, of, of its origin, name, namely being of kin. Um, so we are, we are kind to each other because we, we belong to, to a, a family in some sense. I didn't realize that was the origin yeah. of that word. That's really but, wonderful, wonderful thing to know. Um, that, 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 sorry, that also just gave yeah, me... No, but th- that's good. Now, now, now we're, we're both in each other's words. You are in kindness and I, and I am in tenderness. But I feel that that word you used has so, uh, so much meaning for you. And it's not usually the 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 word one might one might use after having spoken so um uh, so forcefully about what it means to be a man yeah well i think that the way i think of the word tender it it it, it has all the other implications uh in it but i think about the way in which it also means easily moved to sympathy or or compassion, mm. or hopefully a better word, empathy. Um, but I'm also acutely aware that it, it also means painfully sensitive, uh, a tender wound, for instance. So mm, vulnerable. Mm, mm. So it's it it means um, a kind of precariousness and vulnerability. Yes, yes. But it, it also implies a certain kind of yielding. And, and this is a power, to yield is to have power. Um, mm, mm, which is exactly the contrary of what we usually assume power to be. Mm. Well, you know, I, I kind of, I grew up in, in, within the thought process of West African religions like Ifa uh, and Afa. And, and water is the primary metaphor used all the time. In fact, my father, who was a very, how can I say, difficult individual, honest man, difficult man, because he often believed in, uh, he, he intervened quite strongly to help people. Um, but his nickname in Igbo was Akudukurumini, when water burns to fire. Mm. You know, I mean, when fire burns to water, which really, of course, implies that if you if you imagine that you can a giant tree can fall on the ground, break houses and create havoc, it falls into the water and the water just carries it away. No, no matter the raging force of fire, when it comes to a body of water, it, it extinguishes itself. So for the Yoruba, this idea and, and, and they're afraid there there are ways they talk about it. Uh, water has no hands and no legs, yet it carries away the world. Um, this idea that that it's it's an it is a yielding force, and 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 that doesn't mean that the water we know the water has memory scientifically that's been proven, which means the water must feel the tree that falls into it. But what water chooses to do is not to then plow down, go on a sort of flood into the forest and mow down all the trees, but rather carries that tender bruise in a in a way that moves things away, moves them along. So for me. Tenderness is a is a is a real is a real transformative center because it means that one feels, and I don't mean this in sort of the 
you know, the classic coffee shop conversations of like, oh, I'm such an empath, I feel so much. No, but in which one sits in, in a thing, in a, in a bruise or a wound that should really destroy a person. And yet from that, we lean more into sympathy, more into compassion, more into empathy, because maybe there is an understanding. Oh, you know, um, so many things come to mind. One of them is when you talk about water, I think about the word and its origins, again, the word influence, which has has a lot to do with a stream. But I'm also thinking of um, the, the, the notion that in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance, tact was considered to be a virtue to be tactful and we we talk about something uh, getting having a tactile kind of inebriation when we feel certain things um and we 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 think in in another way that every one of our fingers in a way has the, is an eye has a impetus to see and it it seems to me so so beautiful the way you 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 speak about this notion of tenderness nearly as perhaps one of the most important and perhaps one of the deepest aspirations we can have. To be I certainly aspire to it. I mean, I fail every day, but I think that's part of the beauty of aspiration that we must reach sincerely, understanding that maybe we can never succeed, but that each reaching for it opens up, a, to use water again, a new tributary in our understanding, a new, a new flow, a new sense uh, a new influence, perhaps. Um, and, and it's, it's again, at the core of this, you know, Baldwin talks about love unashamedly um, in a way that I think intellectuals now think that that's sentimental. And then he did acknowledge that there is a sentimentality to it. But he was speaking about love as in, in ways we, we don't think about, an obligation, a duty of care. Um, yeah. a, a, a way of being in the world that can sometimes go against what we may think is, is the right, what we think is right or wrong. Um, a sort of way in which language shifts, uh, away from, um, from, from direct speech into inferential speech. And I was, I was raised within inferential languages, not within direct languages. And I think direct languages have become more a product of capitalism and market economies than actual cultural movements. I think all humanness is, is leaning into, in, it leans more into inferentiality, which is where tactfulness, I think, is at play. Um, but also Toni Morrison does this. I, I mean, she probably would never say this, but for me, all of Toni Morrison's work struggles or sort of works around this paradox of love, that how can it be that love, which is kind of an eros, the life, the life instinct, the impulse to, to, to live, can be such a generative and yet simultaneously perhaps the most destructive force in the universe. Again, we're back to this idea of the uncertaintiness of things. And, and it seems that, 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 that this is where, when we use words like kindness or tender, we're trying to find ways to speak about this same force or the same impulse and idea, the same reach for something, uh, but but not in in ways that can be easily dismissed as sentimental. Well, that's right, and and you know, uh, Jan Morris speaks about 
uh, about kindness as as a strong as a strong virtue not as a weakness as does adam phillips it's not you know we often think of kindness as a a, a form of weakness and um much to much to the contrary um I, I think and i think that's what what the balance you're trying to strike that it is it is actually a force and it is a force the way you were talking about water that yields there is one book there is one book of yours you 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 well know chris that i i i love many of your books but there's one we've we've spoken about a little bit and um it still strikes me as very powerful it it, it it's called the face cartography of the void and there so there's so many passages i could i could quote from it but just just one of them to to give people who are overhearing our conversation today uh, a sense of 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 it is just a very short sentence where you say most of the confusion about who I am is a product of how my face is red. And I, I, um, I stumble upon that sentence because, because, because we appear, I mean, the one place where we are naked always, um, is our face. And the eyes which help us look. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I'm, I'm silent here, uh, not because I don't have anything to say, but because I'm waiting for you to, to, to tell me about this, this difficulty that people have or this, this confusion that is caused by the sight of misreading your face. <laughs> well, part of, you know, it's funny because I grew up, I grew up with, I have three elder brothers and, you know, boys tease each other. So like I was just saying that, I can just think of all the ways in which my brothers joke about my face causing discomfort. <laughs> but, yeah. When I was asked to write this book, because I, I was, it was part of a series, I thought, what am I, like most people, you, you never think of your face. Um in, in certain ways, because even oftentimes when we're looking in the mirror, it's just to confirm that we're wearing the right mask, you know, whether it's mm. with makeup or with certain things, or even not looking at the mirror is part of the mask in a certain way, because then we never have to see it. But I, I, I said the thing about the sort of the, how much the face is like, it's almost like your computer interface, it's all the virtual programming behind that and what people encounter. Well, partly for me, my mother was a white English woman, and I use the word English, not British, because there are distinctions between nation and, and ethnicity here. Um, and my father uh, is an Igbo, Nigerian Igbo man. Again, distinction between nation and ethnicity. Um, and my, my mother was was averagely fair for her whiteness, um, but my father was really, really dark. And... Um, when when emerged, it's interesting how, for instance, when I mentioned being biracial, most people look at my face and because it's not, it doesn't have the likeness that they're looking for when they think of biraciality. That confuses them. And then there's an implication one may be lying or that a statement of fact is a yearning for an association with what certain things, certain people might think that may be a better association. Uh, but also then I have a way in which I look Indian. Um, 
and I have a last name, Abani, that is quite a famous Gujarati name. You know, there are many Abani Patels, there are many, and I'm invited to all the conferences, and often when I do readings, South Asians come and then they're confused when they see, when they realize I'm not. Uh, there are ways in which I look Egyptian, particularly, or Libyan. Uh, there are ways in which in, in, I can look Maori when I'm in New Zealand. There are ways in which I look like a South Pacific Islander in many ways, like from Tonga, the Solomon Islands. Uh, so it seems that going through the world, but I don't, people, people look at your face and they try to read who they think you are from it. And what it really means is how much can they project onto this face. Um, and so, you know, white, there are white people who have some whiteness projected onto them that they, they, that has nothing to do with who they are, but it's projected by someone else trying to, so, I find that I'm always the wrong. I'm always the wrong, <laughs> the wrong face in different places. Um, for some people, I I don't look gaunt enough to look like I'm an intellectual, uh, or like that I would know things about suffering. For other people, I I don't fit. I have ac an accent that is hard to place. Um, so there are all these ways in which <coughs> my body does not conform, or particularly my face does not conform to certain requirements. Uh, and this mm. creates discomfort, and then things are projected onto that. And because I am fully aware of the, the void, and I use the word void not in a negative way, because if we're thinking back even in terms of, uh, of potentiality, you know, the voice of God moves over the void and so on and so forth. So I look at the void not as a place of emptiness, but my, that I'm fully aware of all the potentialities within me that defy expectation in certain ways, that... Um, I'm always, uh, I'm, I'm no longer surprised by it, but I'm always amused by it. And amused to the, the, to the, the lengths that people will go to, to assert their reading of my faith. Well, you know, it, it, I, of course, as you were talking, I was thinking how you were, um, offering, you know, nearly a Talmudic reading of, uh, of, uh, the second part of the, the the title of the book, the face cartography of the void, and the word cartography, obviously now, as you as you have explained, becomes so much clearer, as it were, to me. And, but what I also hear is people can take you for this or for that, and because they there's so many ways in which they can take you to be this or that and you're not either this or that it also this uncertainty or this confusion um provides you if one looks at it from a certain point of view with a sense of freedom absolutely absolutely but is is the freedom hard one though yes yes we're often forced to kind of settle, and I use the word cartography because, you know, I'm also, as you said, in the Talmudic sense, because it's mapping all of the potentials. But what tends to happen is that you are forced to descend in, into particular territories and to establish your territory there and argue only that territory. And my refusal, what it does then is I think sometimes when people confront that uncertainty, whether they encounter it in my work, whether they actually encounter it on my being or the words that come out of my mouth, what it does is it disrupts their own mask, and it, it it makes them realize how many masks and how many facades that they're wearing, and the idea that you don't always need one, or that you can put them on and take, with the knowledge that you can take them off, so you're never stuck with one mask, as, as Jim Carrey often was in the movie The Mask. 
You know, um, the way you, you, you are talking now offers yet another um, commentary, as it were, of that quotation that haunts me so much um, when, when Baldwin says that people cling to their hate. Because in, in some way, if you begin to think about that in relationship to unmasking yourself, it takes on a whole new meaning. And, 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 and one is fearful of, of doing that because what might one show and what might one discover? And in the case of Baldwin, he says, you, you know, you might really discover the, the, the pain of pain, as it were. You know, you mentioned, um, Bob Marley in passing. And, um, in a conversation I had not long ago with Marlon James, I discovered that he does something that you do too, that you both share a way of working, and I'm sure many, many, many writers do, which is he always works with music on. Mm. Yes, I do that. I do that. And, and well, do you, do you think you, you do it because those influences are, are needed at all time or because if it was quiet it just would be too lonely um well you know there is i mean i'm never really there's I, i'm one of those kids who when i, I mean one of those guys <laughs> when I, when I was, well think of yourself as a kid why not go <laughs> but when i was growing up i i often was a bit of a uh a, you know, people worried about me because I love to spend a lot of time alone. And particularly in an African culture, which is much more communal, this often signals big behavioral problems. <laughs> it's just that I, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm never, I'm seldom lonely. I, I, you know, I mean, that's the difference, I guess, between solitude and loneliness. Loneliness is, is a, a pain of being alone and solitude is sort of the joy of, of the loneliness. But I think mm. that what it is for me mm. is, um, there is still a child in me, uh, that is very lazy, doesn't like to work. I really don't like to work, Paul. I'm left to me. I would just lie around all day watching television and reading books and drinking tea. But, um, it sounds, it sounds quite lovely. It does. Sitting down to write. Uh, it, it, I just, it's, I'm so lazy. I, I would rather, so, and if you leave me quiet, then I start to rebel against it, and then my mind starts to starts to go into too many places, and I can't focus. Whereas something as beautiful as music, or even the other kinds of music that we don't think of, like the noise in a train station or in an airport. I used to love to go to airports and write in, in the departure lounge because there's a, you're part of this large hum mm. of music, of activity, of emotion mm. that's going on that you can choose not to partake. And so the, the, in a sense, what that does, 
uh, all the noise around me, whether it's actual music, television, which I often write with, or public spaces, they, they, they allow my mind, the unconscious parts of my mind or the subconscious to do what it needs to do. It's titillated by all that. And then my conscious mind can focus in on the work that needs to be done in a non-resentful way. And you know, I mean, again, um, so many paths to take. One of them, um, <laughs> it, 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 I mean, Chris, this is, this is why I, I adore speaking with you, is that w one trigger here is you saying that you, you love to be in an airport lounge, and I, I immediately think about departures and arrivals. And I think about the essay that you're trying to write now that that you have to sit down and do and it's all about leaving and coming back and and the music that that you surround yourself with is probably a way also i imagine of connecting to different spaces different places and i wonder what that music might be and if what i just said makes any sense at all of course it makes perfect sense, and that's the, the particular... So, for instance, Mali brings me very much back home growing up in Nigeria, because, you know, Mali, I, the way people, I think, a generation beneath me or just a few years younger than me kind of grew up within what one might think of as a hip-hop aesthetic and the politics of that, mine was, was reggae, because, because reggae, for me, has all the things that speak to me. Every reggae song is a protest song. But at the same time, simultaneously, that same protest song is a love song. Mm. At the same time, it contains a certain kind of spiritual lament. It contains, so it's like it has all the social engagement, it has all sort of the spiritual yearning, uh, and it has basically all of the sensuality of the human within that one song. If you think of Mali's No Woman, No Cry, it's a beautiful love song, but it's also a highly charged political song about certain kinds of political times, both not only within Jamaica, but within this notion of class and the disruption of wealth and all of that. Um, it's a song you can have a slow dance to. It's a song you can hold a rally to. And I think this is the power of reggae, is that its aesthetic is always based on, an, on, an, on a yearning for something not so much re redemptive, <clears throat> but more <clears throat> restorational, you know. So I think about, even in terms of, if you think about the ways in which people talk about epiphanies or, or even sort of about um, these moments of clarity where you sort of, you know, all those epiphanies are wonderful, right? But there's restoration that is the real problem. So if you, if you had an epiphany and Jesus was the path, that is all well and good, but how to live, that how to live in a restorative way in the world is what trips up everyone and this is what means makes makes it hard to move from change to transformation and for me reggae music in particular and certain kinds of jazz like listening to some of miles davis's early work and all of this creates an openness you can't listen to kind of blue and not find all these open quiet spaces within your soul and ask yourself what lives there what manner of self lives there and 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 is it, are there parts of you cowering because you're a coward to face them so when you do good in the world is it really good if you have never confronted your own capacity to not do good and so it allows you to have these safe 
let's use the word safe because then it, it, it has no real danger to the world, to anyone other than yourself. But it's, it's such a recuperative and therefore restorative practice and therefore transformational practice. And to have all of that swirling around you as you try to find your way in to articulate story, which I believe is the most powerful um, force, at least within the manifest world, because story determines everything. How a story is positioned determines everything. How you position yourself in the story determines everything. That much of the reality we take for granted is just a, a multiple complex of stories that we believe or disbelieve. That that it becomes important for an artist to be able to have those spaces. Um, so that's that's so you're right in that sense. The big influence in the way you used it as water. Chris, um, I, I wonder if you, you might leave us with something you might read. Uh, uh, yeah, so I thought perhaps I was trying to figure out what to read, and then I guess I'll read you something very short from The Face, because you like The Face. I, li I, I like The Face, and, you know, I, I think about it all the time. I think about what, what that space is, because we're confronted perpetually with with the face of the other and trying trying to to read it as carefully and as openly as as we possibly can and i'm you know i'm always reminded i think i've i've quoted to you this line uh, by albert camus where he says something like i think it's just about the right words he says alas after a certain age a man is responsible for his face and I've always, it's always been on my mind. Um, I've debated with it and I've wondered, you know, have I arrived at that age? And uh, when do we arrive at that age? And when do we look at ourselves and this is who we are? Or are we perpetually in motion and never quite that person? And what does it mean to have a responsibility in that way? Anyway, I wanted you to read, and I didn't want to, you know, sermon with, with a, a quotation of Albert Camus. So read something to us. Okay. Oh, that's actually beautiful. Wow. I could talk to you for hours. Um, let's make a plan. <laughs> let's make a plan. Uh, yeah. But this is a small section, um, very short. The, the, the book, The Face, Cartography of the Void, also makes use of lists in, 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 as kind of a sense of an index. Part of what cartography is, is indexing. So this is a short index, and the index is called This is Hope. One, that I can change. Two, that I can overcome my DNA. Three, that my nature will overcome nurture. Four, that I will leave a trail of love when I go. Five, that I will try, sorry, five, that I will die trying to be a good man. Six, that all the hate dies with me. Seven, that my face and my father's face and his father's face before him will blaze in an unending lineage of light and forgiveness. Yeah. Chris. What a pleasure it has been to talk to you. Likewise. Thank I, you very much. I loved it. Speak to you soon again. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.